and utterly bananas. Children remember it all, sometimes forever. On the next selected shorts, a child in that impressionable time of life recalls an influential teacher in Richard Yates's classic, Fun with a Stranger. It's also a personal favorite of mine. She was strict and humorless, preoccupied with rooting out the things she held intolerable, mumbling. I'm your host, Meg Wallitzer. Slumping. Stay with us. You're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. When we're young and impressionable, the adults in our lives have an enormous outsized influence on us. Not just on our day-to-day lives, including what we wear or what time we go to bed, but also on our developing values, how we see the world, and who we end up becoming somewhere down the road. In this show, our stories look at ferocious figureheads— Each one has a profound impact on the young people around them. One of the characters is a mother, one is a schoolteacher. Both of them are seen through the eyes of adult protagonists who are recounting childhood memories. For this reason, I think the most compelling characters feel larger than life and entirely unforgettable. It's that same indelible impression that I might get if I bumped into, say, Malala or Banksy or Beyonce. That's not going to happen. Our first story... Lumberjack Mom is by writer Caribbean Fragosa. Her fiction has been published in places like Bomb, and her first collection, Eat the Mouth That Feeds You, came out in 2021. This story, about a matriarch's heroic efforts to mourn and then move on, contains a familiar theme for Fragosa. She often presents Latinx women struggling to hold on in extraordinary situations. The actor performing this story is Roberta Colindres. She's been featured in series including I Love Dick, Vita, and The Deuce. She also originated the role of Joan in the Broadway musical Fun Home. Now, reading Lumberjack Mom by Caribbean Fragosa is Roberta Colindres. That spring... When the dormant roots and seeds started sprouting and our father stopped coming home, our mother took to the backyard with fervent urgency. Overnight, it seemed, vegetation had burst through the cracks, split the tile and cement, broken through the clay pots and tin cans. Grass spilled over the hedges with a despicable gusto. One morning, my brother and I woke up to find our breakfast already cold on the kitchen counter and our mother at work in the backyard, crawling on her hands and knees, clawing out weeds with tiny flowers we'd never seen before that now burgeoned in tenacious clusters throughout the lawn. She dedicated hours to these new invaders, ripping them out from the grass like clumps of hair, fistfuls of roots dangling dirt and squirming worms like freshly torn scalps still steaming. Our mother's face sweated and twisted under the sun. We watched her silently from the bathroom window, heads butted together. We heard her sister call out from another window, "'Mom, are you okay?' Yes, mija, it's just hot, she answered, wiping the sweat with the back of her bare hand. The next day, we noticed she'd pulled out some gardening tools, small hoes and some shears that she'd sharpened with a rock. We recognized the hand-sized volcanic slab from our grandmother's house in Guadalajara, from before she passed away. One of her prized possessions, our grandmother had used it to sharpen her knives and shears, sitting alone and in silence at the head of the table. 
My brother and I would sit in front of the TV and pretend not to watch her. She'd then retreat into the kitchen with her knives to perform mysterious domestic acts. Our mother used her freshly sharpened tools to cut up the thick roots of unidentified plants that seemed to be waiting for the right time to reveal themselves. She wasn't going to give them a chance. Eventually, we noticed that her favorite tool was a set of narrow-nosed pliers that she'd stab into the ground to extract even the most reluctant roots. She'd have to pull very hard, sometimes using both hands and the weight of her small body. Often, it was the thin, spidery roots that were the most persistent and dug themselves in the deepest. Our mother, however, was very thorough, for any remnant would have sabotaged everything. As the days passed, we watched her rove through the garden, flower bed to flower bed, potted plant to potted plant, and then cycle back methodically to rip out the invasive flower clusters that resurfaced in the grass. When she arrived at the lime tree's jagged shadow, she immediately got up off her hands and knees. I thought she might have hunched after spending so much time curled over the ground, or that she might need to steady her head if it was spinning with blood having been bent so low beneath the sun. But she stood straight up before the lime tree as if measuring her height against it. She seemed taller than usual, as if she had height stored inside of her for certain occasions. That night at supper, my siblings and I watched her swallow down a large glass of water with hardly a breath. And then she announced that she wanted to cut down the lime tree. My brother and sister and I looked at each other in silence. Although she'd never outright said so, we knew she'd wanted to cut it down for some time now. The tree is useless if it doesn't produce limes, she stated bluntly. And that, she pointed out, was our father's fault. When we were very young, my parents had lovingly smuggled the seeds in their luggage from Mexico. They wrapped them in embroidered, perfumed handkerchiefs that they carefully packed into plastic baggies, rolled into socks, and then stuffed into tennis shoes. They'd even planted a decoy in their suitcase so that when the customs people pulled out our candied fruits and held up the sugared rolls to toss them ceremoniously in a trash bin, we feigned disappointment. Together, bound by complicity, we silently relished our secret accomplishment and held warmly in our hearts the knowledge of those protected little seeds that were on their way to starting a new generation just like us. Together, we watched the tree grow. We talked to it as one might talk to a baby, using sweet gibberish and tickling its leaves. We'd tell it what a lovely little tree it was. Oh, what a beautiful little tree, growing so big, so big now. Bigger every day. Look at you. Drink your water. Stretch toward the sun. Ay, que bonito limoncito. We celebrated every one of its lime tree milestones, its first tender branch, and its first flower. Its first lime was observed carefully and treasured. How we loved its sour fruit. She had loved it too. Over time, we allowed the tree to grow at its own whim, not having the heart to cut off a single one of its beloved leaves or branches. However, instead of growing juicy limes that ripened fully and dropped to the green grass for us to gather, it produced many tiny, hard limes that it guarded with a web of knotted branches and vicious thorns. The fruit would ripen deep within the foliage and finally drop to rot on the ground. The interior growth was so dense and low that we could no longer reach under it to rescue the limes. The shade spoiled the ground, and the lime acid spoiled it too. Most trees that spoil their own ground, roots deprived of essential nutrients, gradually suffocate themselves. Yet this one continued to grow, and we accepted it, cruel thorns and all. Several years ago, our father made his last attempt at landscaping, 
My mother had asked him to prune the tree, said that it had been choking itself with its own gnarled branches. The tree needed maintenance and care like any other living being, my mother said to my father. He knew where she was headed with this, so he grabbed a machete from the garage and began chopping. He left the tree entirely bereft of its flowers, fruit and foliage, sparing only a large, chewed-up gray bulk of thorny twigs and branches attached to its short trunk. It looked like a lopsided brain that had been cut up but remained alive, sputtering splintered thoughts. We wept for days, including our mother, and our father didn't come home until we shut up. Our poor tree. After several seasons, it eventually recovered its green leaves and grew back its barbed branches, and even began to flower but refused to give fruit altogether. My siblings and I continued to watch the lime tree for signs. We studied the flower buds, careful not to disturb the fragile petals. We also refused to trim it, even though we knew, as we always had, that we should for the good of the tree. We loved it, perhaps as much as we loved each other, but didn't know how to care for it. Since then, our mother had avoided the tree. She had blocked it from her field of vision until now. Sitting at the dinner table, my brother and I said nothing in response to my mother's idea. However, we saw that our sister was carefully sifting through something in her mind. It shifted quietly in her head, trickling a little in one direction and then another, moving it in a subtle bob that was neither a nod nor a shake. Through the silence, our mother's thoughts seemed to have moved on to a different subject as she finished off her meal in a few large bites and stood up to gather the dishes from the table. As she disappeared into the kitchen, we could still hear her chewing, crunching on her charred-edged tortilla. I thought for an instance of her strong teeth, large for her small, thin-lipped mouth. None of us had inherited teeth like that. After several days, when she had finished tearing bald spots into the lawn and taming the hedges, at least for a while, she noticed all the crap we'd put out in the yard over the years and forgot about. Mostly defunct furniture we never got around to throwing away. She turned her instinct to an old chest of drawers we'd long abandoned in the far end of the yard, where it was now rotting. From our usual window, my brother and I watched her break it up with her bare hands. A family of cats ran out, the kittens chasing after their mother. She pushed the chest over on its side like a small whale carcass and pulled up the panels with the weight of her body. She tore out small, rusted nails and staples that once held the pieces together. We could hear her grunt as she worked, clenching her teeth, the bone of her jaw gleaming. The veins in her forearms and hands bulged as she pulled and snapped off the rotting boards. At dinner time, we watched her bandaged fingers scoop food from her plate with bits of tortilla. Without looking at us, she said, I've been thinking about getting rid of some of the old furniture in the house. My brother and I were overjoyed, relieved. Our sister's head bobbed excitedly. There were plenty of old, not to mention ugly, furniture we'd insisted on getting rid of for ages. Most of it was furniture my parents bought on layaway when we were still babies. By now, their emotional value had run out. Their laminated surfaces blistered and peeled, revealing the cheap particle board underneath. The next day, our mother showed us a new pile of what used to be a bookshelf. The following day, a sewing table. Throughout the week, some old chairs, an entertainment center, a lazy boy. She found a rusty saw among the tools our father had abandoned in the garage. She sawed into the legs of various upright pieces, then broke them down into smaller pieces, which she arranged into tall piles in the middle of the yard. As the days grew longer, she'd work later through the afternoon, and the piles got larger. My siblings and I came to the yard to admire them at the end of each day. At dusk, our sister hugged our mother until it grew dark 
while my brother and I filled the trash bin with debris. We smiled too, but started to think that maybe she'd cut up enough furniture. We didn't want her to start shopping the stuff we actually liked and needed. It occurred to us, my brother and me, that her mother had demonstrated such natural chopping skills that perhaps she could make an excellent lumberjack. We imagined her out in the woods somewhere, marching with great determination, every part of her body radiating strength as she swung her axe at redwoods that were no match for her. With a single blow, she'd splinter the entire thing into perfect logs that would land in neatly arranged cabins, their small windows somehow already curtained. Our mother, smiling sweated gold. We decided to surprise her with a new axe and a small pile of neat logs. We installed one strong stump in the yard to hold the blocks, take the blows and hacks. She went at it immediately with remarkable precision and grace, like a dancer slicing each log down the middle. It was a beautiful thing to watch. She held that axe as naturally as if it were the hairbrush she'd used, until recently, to brush her hair out of a braid while she waited for our father late into the night. She'd brush and brush until her long hair gleamed like cascading water or the grain of polished wood. Now that her wait was over, she just split logs most of the afternoon, one after the other in clean strokes. In the evening, she oiled her callous hands before walking off to bed without saying goodnight. To break the monotony of watching this daily routine through the bathroom window, we started playing checkers in the bathtub. We waited for an idea to come to us about what to do next as we listened to the sound of wood cracking beneath a neatly sharpened blade. One day, the sound of screams shook us from our pensive game. We ran outside to find her axing through the weathered boards of our backyard fence. Our sister stood by, watching with crossed arms. The neighbors stood frozen in shock over their vegetable patches. My mother shredded the old wood fence. They were nice people. They often left grocery bags filled with freshly picked oranges, sometimes odd fruits we didn't have names for, hanging on our side of the fence. Usually they smiled and waved at us from their back porch. Today, they gripped onions to their hearts, shouted at us in their language. She remained focused on the fence, even while my brother tore the axe from her white knuckles and I held her tightly against my body with all of my strength. I could feel her heavy breathing pushing through her small ribcage. I expected to feel her heart whipping its wings against her ribs like a parakeet shaken in its cage. Instead, inside, I felt a large furry animal balled up, breathing slow but strong. It waited patiently to break out. We knew that she was ready for more than mere log splitting. My brother and I deliberated while our mother rested in the dark living room, our sister watching her intently. By dinner time, we had a plan. We proposed an excursion to a nearby mountain to cut down her first tree, after which we promised to treat her to dinner at her favorite Italian restaurant. Another silence spread over the dinner table. Our sister peered at her mom from the bottom of the glass of water she'd long finished drinking. After a minute or two, our mother stopped glaring through the blinds at something in the yard and seemed to be considering our proposal. Finally, she nodded, tight-lipped. We accepted that as a gesture of approval and even, perhaps, determination. We felt encouraged. Things were going to move forward. That following Saturday morning, we wrapped up her axe in an old crocheted blanket we found in the garage. It used to be our baby blanket, but for this occasion, we'd pulled it out of the black trash bag where my mother had stored it. We all packed into the car and drove up to the nearest mountain until we found enough trees to call it a woods. We scouted around for a proper tree, calling back to our mom to put her new gloves on and get ready. My brother and I disagreed and then agreed on a tree. We chose a medium-sized tree that seemed to be drying up. 
It looked ashy all over, and we could see some dusty spider webs up in its branches. The bark flaked off easily in thick scabs against our palms. When we returned, our mother leaned against the car eating sandwiches out of paper napkins with my sister. She offered us the ones she'd packed for us, but we told her it was time to get to work on that tree we'd picked out for her. She pulled on the new gloves and flexed her fingers to break in the tough leather. She picked up the axe awkwardly, without a hint of the grace we'd witnessed days earlier. When we arrived at the tree, she stopped. She seemed to not know what to do. Neither did we. We tried to encourage her. Try it out. Just hit it and it'll come. You'll figure it out. You can do it. She tried swinging the axe, but had a hard time raising it over her shoulder. Her wrists kept getting twisted up. She couldn't even figure out how to stand and kept shifting and switching her feet around. Finally, she swung and the blade hit the flaky trunk. A few bark chips flew off. She swung and hit it again with a thud, and some dust fell from the spider's webs onto my sister's hair. My sister's terrified of spiders. My brother and I realized something. Chopping down trees in the woods is completely different from chopping up furniture or logs in the yard. Nothing was happening. Our mother dropped the axe onto the pine needles covering the forest floor. She didn't want to do it. Her heart wasn't in it. It was more difficult than we'd all expected. And besides, she said the tree, although it was dying, deserved to die with dignity on its own. Let's just leave it alone. Just leave it alone and let it die, she said softly. My brother and I stared at the axe on the ground. I ran to it, panicked that already it might be rusting and then all hope would be lost. Our mother dropped to the foot of the tree and buried her face in our sister's arms. After that, our mother insisted on staying indoors. My brother and I wished she would pick up the axe again. We bought a fresh pile of logs and even collected some old furniture from the neighbors, hoping to entice her back to chopping. We rubbed the rust out of the steel and even oiled the wooden handle. We laid it out on a pretty gingham cloth next to a pitcher of cold lemonade on the kitchen table, though she hardly made her way to the kitchen at all now. If only we could get her started again. We could figure out what to do next. She remained in the living room for three days. On the fourth day, my brother and I went out to collect more furniture discarded along the curb. We weren't ready to give up on our mother. We began arranging the pieces around the front and backyard. We placed them by the front door near windows where she might catch sight of them. There was one particularly attractive small log about the size of a meaty arm that we even left out on a coffee table in the living room. When we returned from one of our excursions, we noticed a trail of splinters, long shreds of wood. The small tables we'd left in the front yard had been pulverized. We were excited. We looked at each other eagerly. Finally, our mother, we were going to have our mother back. We'd figured things out. We were going to make the best of it. We followed the trail of debris to the backyard. We followed the sound of her axe. It sounded different than wooden logs or particle board or panels of cherry wood or anything like that. Our sister stood solemnly at the gate to the yard and did not look at us. We found her mother chopping through a tangle of branches. Her arms were gashed by the long thorns, as if they'd been fighting back for their lives. Her face was also covered in a web of thin scratches but they were hardly visible against her darkly tanned face. The scratches were lined with tiny beads of black blood that shone like unblinking eyes in the sun. The lime tree. Our little lime tree. We were aghast. She had chopped it down. She chopped our lime tree down to brambles. 
She'd slashed off all of the leafy branches without regard for the countless white blossoms heavy with pollen and bees. The yard was littered with tender leaves, their young flesh brilliantly green against the coarse dry grass. The blossom scent was sweet in the dense air. She'd cut through the tree's gnarled underbrush, which was piled waist-high all around her. She stood at the center of a ring of thorns with the amputated limbs strewn at her feet. Through the underbrush, we could see that the limbs had been healthy and green at their core. They were covered not in a scabby bark, but in a thin skin that would break easily even with the lightest fingernail scratch. We remembered how vulnerable the tree always felt to us. Oblivious to us, our mother continued chopping the remaining branches with greater ease and expertise than we had ever witnessed before. Finally, she arrived at its naked trunk that stood alone among the brambles that now filled most of the yard. We could not reach our mother without crossing the fields of thorns. Our mother, axe in hand, and the tree trunk, alone, guarded by this destruction. We cried out, No! Not our tree! Not our little lime tree! But our shrieks awakened her from her dizzy reverie, and then, as if in reflex, she swung the axe into the tree's body, piercing it halfway with the blow. And without pause, she swung again a final time, leaving but a thin ligament of green fiber attached to the base of the tree's neck. Without breathing, we watched our mother drop the axe over the bed of thorns and grip the trunk's limp fiber with both hands. She wrenched it free with one long grunt that became a scream at the end. It shook the wild parrots out of the neighboring trees, and all we could do was watch them flap away as her scream dissipated into the hot, colorless sky. And the air became very still and unusually quiet. Except for my mother's breath, which came in long drafts, in and out like a strong tide. That was Roberta Colindres performing the story Lumberjack Mom by Caribbean Fragosa. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar and a lime tree just a lime tree. But in this case, yep, you're right to sense that our narrator is losing out on more than just fresh citrus. In first grade, I had a teacher named Mrs. Gerby. She would invite me up to her desk to dictate stories to her. I was like a business executive, and she was my secretary— Take a letter, Mrs. Gerby. I think she saw something, some early enthusiasm, and wanted to encourage it. But the rest was going to be up to me. When we return, a classic story by Richard Yates about elementary school classmates who, unlike me, don't love their teacher, but defend her anyway. I'm Meg Wallitzer. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Wallitzer. If you, too, want to be part of our show, then please check out the Selected Shorts writing contest. Every year, one of your favorite writers chooses a lucky winner, and the prizes are, I am in no way biased, amazing. 
$1,000, publication on electric literature, an actor performing your story on selected shorts, and a free writing class with Gotham Writers Workshop. This year's judge is Carmen Maria Machado, author of Her Body and Other Parties, In the Dream House, and more. Visit SelectedShorts.org and submit by March 1, 2024, for your chance to win. Our second story about a ferocious figurehead is Richard Yates's Fun with a Stranger. It's also a personal favorite of mine. Yates grew up during the Depression, and in novels such as Revolutionary Road, he reckoned with the elusive American dream and the loneliness lurking behind it and maybe sometimes saturating it. In fact, the collection that this story came from is called Eleven Kinds of Loneliness. While the story is about growing up and one withholding teacher, it does share something with his most well-known works. Yeats's straightforward prose exhibits an ability to find universal truths in what seem like simple circumstances. And I want to say here that this piece was written in 1962. Some of the language feels a little dated and even insensitive by today's standards. But Yeats is someone I still want to read. In this story, he's a kind of miniaturist, going deep into the collective feelings of kids in school, but also giving a glimpse of the adult landscape. He shows how stuck everyone is, whether it's children who are at adults' mercy or adults whose limitations have maybe kept their own lives from turning out the way they'd hoped. You get a glimpse of both sides here. Reading this story is Tony Award winner Marion Seldes. Seldes spent much of her professional life in the theater, and she's remembered for productions including Three Tall Women, Death Trap, and A Delicate Balance. Here she is reading Fun with a Stranger by Richard Yates. All that summer, the children who were due to start third grade under Miss Snell had been warned about her. (laughs) Boy, you're gonna get it. The older children would say, distorting their faces with a wicked pleasure. You're really gonna get it. (laughs) Mrs. Cleary's all right. Mrs. Cleary taught the other, luckier half of the third grade. She's fine, but boy, that's Snell. You better watch out. So it happened that the morale of Miss Snell's class was low (laughs) even before school opened in September. And she did little in the first few weeks to improve it. She was probably 60, a big, raw-boned woman with a man's face, and her clothes, if not her very pores, seemed always to exude that dry essence of pencil shavings and chalk dust that is the smell of school. She was strict and humorless, preoccupied with rooting out the things she held intolerable, mumbling, (laughs) slumping, daydreaming, frequent trips to the bathroom, and worst of all, coming to school without proper supplies. 
Her small eyes were sharp, and when somebody sent out a stealthy alarm of whispers and nudges to try to borrow a pencil from somebody else, it almost never worked. What's the trouble back there, she'd demand. I mean you, John Gerhardt. And John Gerhardt or Howard White or whoever it happened to be, caught in the middle of a whisper, could only turn red and say, nothing. <laughs> Don't mumble. <laughs> Is it a pencil? Have you come to school without a pencil again? Stand up when you're spoken to. And there would follow a long lecture on proper supplies that ended only after the offender had come forward to receive a pencil from the small hoard on her desk and had been made to say, thank you, Miss Snell, and to repeat until he had said it loud enough for everyone to hear a promise that he would not chew it <laughs> or break its point. With erasers, it was even worse because they were more often in short supply owing to a general tendency to chew them off the ends of pencils. Miss Snell kept a big, shapeless, old eraser on her desk, and she seemed very proud of it. This is my eraser, she would say, <laughs> shaking it at the class. I have had this eraser for five years. Five years. And this was not hard to believe. For the eraser looked as old and gray and worn down as the hand that brandished it. I have never played with it because it is not a toy. I have never chewed it because it is not good to eat. And I have never lost it because I am not foolish and I am not careless. I need this eraser <laughs> for my work. And I have taken good care of it. Now, why can't you do the same with your erasers? I don't know what's the matter with this class. I have never had a class so foolish and so careless and so childish <laughs> about its supplies. She never seemed to lose her temper, but it would almost have been better if she did, for it was the flat, dry, passionless redundance of her scolding that got everybody down. When Miss Snell singled someone out for a special up Braiding. It was an ordeal by talk. She would come up to within a foot of her victim's face. Her eyes would stare unblinkingly into his, and the wrinkled gray flesh of her mouth would labor to pronounce his guilt grimly and deliberately until all the color faded from the day. She seemed to have no favorites. Once she even picked on Alice Johnson, who always had plenty of supplies and did nearly everything right. Alice was 
mumbling while reading aloud. And when she continued to mumble, after several warnings, Miss Snell went over and took the book away and lectured her for several minutes running. Alice looked stunned at first, then her eyes filled up, her mouth twitched into terrible shapes, and she gave in to the ultimate humiliation of crying in class. It was not uncommon to cry in Miss Snell's class, even among the boys, and ironically, it always seemed to be during the lull after one of these scenes, when the only sound in the room was somebody's slow, half-stifled sobbing, and the rest of the class stared straight ahead in an agony of embarrassment, that the noise of group laughter would float in from Mrs. Cleary's class <laughs> across the hall. Still, they could not hate Miss Snell, and there was no denying that Miss Snell was sometimes nice in an awkward, groping way of her own. When we learn a new word, she said once, we all like to make new friends, don't we? When we learn a new word, it is like making a new friend. Now, for instance, when school began this year, you were all strangers to me, but I wanted very much to learn your names and remember your faces. And so I made the effort. It was confusing at first, but before long, I'd made friends with all of you. And later on, we'll have some good times together. <laughs> Oh, perhaps a little party at Christmas time. <laughs> Something like that. And then I know I'd be very sorry if I hadn't made that effort because you can't very well have fun with a stranger, can you? She gave them a homely, shy smile. And that's just the way it is with words. When she said something like that, it was more embarrassing than anything else. <laughs> but it did leave the children with a certain vague sense of responsibility toward her, and often prompted them into a loyal reticence when children from other classes demanded to know how bad she really was. <laughs> well, not too bad, they'd say uncomfortably and try to change the subject. John Gerhardt and Howard White usually walked home from school together, and often as not, though they tried to avoid it, they were joined by two of the children from Mrs. Cleary's class who lived on their street, Freddie Taylor and his twin sister, Grace. John and Howard usually got about as far as the end of the playground before the twins came running after them out of the crowd. Hey, wait up, Freddie would call. Wait up. And in a moment, the twins would fall into step beside them, chattering, swinging their identical plaid canvas school bags. Guess what we're going to do next week, Freddie said in his chirping voice one afternoon. Our whole class, I mean. Guess. <laughs> Come on, guess. 
John Gerhard had already made it plain to the twins once in so many words that he didn't like walking home with a girl. And now he very nearly said something to the effect that one girl was bad enough, but two were more than he could take. Instead, he aimed a knowing glance at Howard White, and they both walked on in silence, determined not to answer Freddie's insistent guess. But Freddie didn't wait long for an answer. We're going to take a field trip, he said. For our class in transportation, we're going to go to Harmon. You know what Harmon is? Sure, Howard White said. A town. No, I mean, you know what they do there? Well, what they do is that's where they change all the trains coming into New York from steam locomotives to electric power. And Mrs. Cleary says we're going to watch them changing the locomotives and everything. We're going to spend practically the whole day, said Grace. So what's so great about that, Howard White said. I can go there any day, if I feel like it, on my bike. This uh, was an exaggeration. He wasn't allowed to go out of a two-block radius on his bike. <laughs> but it sounded good, especially when he added, and I don't need any Miss Cleary to take me, with a mincing, sissy emphasis on Cleary. On a school day, Grace inquired. Can you go on a school day? <laughs> Lamely, Howard murmured, sure, if I feel like it. But it was a clear point for the twins. <laughs> Mrs. Cleary says we're going to take a lot of field trips, Freddie said. Later on, we're going to go to the Museum of Natural History in New York and a whole lot of other places. It's too bad you're not in Miss Cleary's class. <laughs> Don't bother me any, John Gerhardt said. And then he came up with a direct quotation from his father that seemed appropriate. Anyway, I don't go to school to fool around. <laughs> I go to school to work. Come on, Howard. A day or two later, it turned out that both classes were scheduled to take the field trip together. Miss Snell had just neglected to tell her pupils about it. When she did tell them, it was in one of her nice moods. I think the trip will be especially valuable, she said, because it will be instructive and, at the same time, it will be a real treat for us. That afternoon, John Gerhardt and Howard White conveyed the news to the twins with studied carelessness and secret delight. But the victory was short-lived, for the field trip itself only emphasized the difference between the two teachers. Mrs. Cleary ran everything with charm and enthusiasm. She was young and lithe and just about the prettiest woman Miss Snell's class had ever seen. It was she who arranged for the children to climb up and inspect the cab of a huge locomotive that stand idle on the siding. And it was she who found out where the public toilets were. The most tedious facts about trains came alive when she explained them. The most forbidding engineers and switchmen became jovial hosts when she smiled up at them, with her long hair blowing and her hands plunged jauntily in the pockets of her polo coat. Through it all, Miss Snell hung in the background, gaunt and sour. 
her shoulders hunched against the wind, and her squinted eyes roving, alert for stragglers. <laughs> At one point, she made Mrs. Cleary wait while she called her own class aside and announced that there would be no more field trips that day if they couldn't learn to stay together in a group. She spoiled everything, and by the time it was over, the class was painfully embarrassed for her. She had every chance to give a good account of herself that day, and now her failure was as pitiful as it was disappointing. That was the worst part of it. She was pitiful. They didn't even want to look at her in her sad, lumpy black coat and hat. All they wanted to do was get her into the bus and back to school and out of sight as soon as possible. The events of autumn each brought a special season to school. First came Halloween, for which several art classes were devoted to crayoned jack-o'-lanterns and arching black cats. Thanksgiving was bigger. For a week or two, the children painted turkeys and horns of plenty and brown-clad pilgrim fathers with high-buckled hats and trumpled-barreled muskets. And in music class, they sang, We Gather Together and America the Beautiful, again and again. And almost as soon as Thanksgiving was over, the long preparations for Christmas began. Red and green predominated, and carols were rehearsed for the annual Christmas pageant. Every day the halls became more thickly festooned with Christmas trimmings, until finally it was the last week before vacation. You gonna have a party in your class, Freddie Taylor inquired one day. Sure, probably, John Gerhardt said, though in fact he wasn't sure at all. Except that for one vague reference many weeks before, Miss Snell had said or hinted nothing whatever about a Christmas party. Miss Snell tell you you're gonna have one or what? Grace asked. Well, she didn't exactly tell us. John Gerhardt said obscurely. Howard White walked along without a word, scuffing his shoes. Mrs. Cleary didn't tell us either, Grace said, because it's supposed to be a surprise, but we know we're going to have one. Some of the kids who were with her last year said so. They said she always has this big party on the last day with a tree and everything and favors and things to eat. You going to have all that? <laughs> oh, I don't know. John Gerhardt said, sure, probably. But later, when the twins were gone, he got a little worried. Hey, Howard, he said, you think she is going to have a party or what? Search me, Howard White said with a careful shrug. I didn't say anything. But he was uneasy about it, too, and so was the rest of the class. As vacation drew nearer, and particularly during the few anticlimactic days of school left after the Christmas pageant was over, it seemed less and less likely that Miss Snell was planning a party of any kind, and it preyed on their minds. It rained on the last day of school. The morning went by like any other morning, and after lunch, like any other rainy day, the corridors were packed with chattering children in raincoats and rubbers, milling around and waiting for the afternoon classes to begin. Around the third grade classrooms, there was a special tension for Mrs. Cleary had locked the door of her room, and word soon spread that she was inside, 
making preparations for a party that would begin when the bell rang and last all afternoon. I peeked, Grace Taylor said breathlessly to anyone who would listen. She's got this little tree with all these blue lights and she's got the room all fixed up and the desks are all moved away and everything. Others from the class tagged after her with questions, oh, what'd you see? All blue lights? And still others jostled around the door, trying to get a look through the keyhole. Miss Snell's class pressed self-consciously against the corridor wall, mostly silent, hands in their pockets. Their door was closed, too, but nobody wanted to see if it was locked for fear it might swing open and reveal Miss Snell sitting sensibly at her desk, correcting papers. Instead, they watched Mrs. Cleary's door, and when it opened at last, they watched the other children flock in. All the girls yelled, ooh, in a chorus as they disappeared inside, and even from where Mrs. Snell's class stood, they could see that the room was transformed. There was a tree with blue lights. The whole room glowed blue, in fact, and the floor was cleared. They could just see the corner of a table in the middle bearing platters of bright candy and cake. Mrs. Cleary stood in the doorway, beautiful and beaming, slightly flushed with welcome. She gave a kindly distracted smile to the craning faces of Miss Snell's class and then closed the door again. A second later, Mrs. Snell's door opened and the first thing they saw was that the room was unchanged. The desks were all in place, ready for work. Their own workaday Christmas painting still spotted the walls, and there was no other decoration except for the grubby red cardboard letters spelling Merry Christmas that had hung over the blackboard all week. But then, with a rush of relief, they saw that on Mrs. Snell's desk lay a neat little pile of red and white wrapped packages. Miss Snell stood unsmilingly at the head of the room, waiting for the class to get settled. Instinctively, nobody lingered to stare at the gifts or to comment on them. Miss Snell's attitude made it plain that the party had not begun yet. <laughs> it was time for spelling, and she instructed them to get their pencils and paper ready. In the silences between her enunciation of each word to be spelled, the noise of Mrs. Cleary's class could be heard, repeated laughter and whoops of surprise. But the little pile of gifts made everything all right. The children had only to look at them to know there was nothing to be embarrassed about. Miss Snell had come through. The gifts were all wrapped alike in white tissue paper with red ribbon, and the few whose individual shapes John Gerhardt could discern looked like they might be jackknives. Um, maybe it would be jackknives for the boys, he thought, and uh, little pocket flashlights for the girls, or, or more likely, since jackknives were probably too expensive, it would be something well-meant and useless from the dime store, like individual lead soldiers for the boys and miniature dolls for the girls. But even that would be good enough, something hard and bright to prove that she was human after all, to pull out of a pocket and casually display to the Taylor twins. Well, no, not a party exactly, but she gave us these little presents, look. 
John Gerhardt, Ms. Snell said, if you can't give your attention to anything but the things on my desk, perhaps I'd better put them out of sight. The class giggled a little, and she smiled. It was only a small, shy smile, quickly corrected before she turned back to her spelling book, but it was enough to break the tension. While the spelling papers were being collected, Howard White leaned close to John Gerhardt and whispered, tie clips. I bet it's tie clips for the boys and some kind of jewelry for the girls. Shh, John told him, but then he added, too thick for tie clips. There was a general shifting around. Everyone expected the party to begin as soon as Miss Snell had all the spelling papers. Instead, she called for silence and began the afternoon class in transportation. The afternoon wore on. Every time Miss Snell glanced at the clock, they expected to say, oh my goodness, I've, I've almost forgotten. But she didn't. It was a little after two, with less than an hour of school left, when Miss Snell was interrupted by a knock on the door. Yes, she said irritably, what is it? Little Grace Taylor came in, with half a cupcake in her hand and the other half in her mouth. She displayed elaborate surprise at finding the class at work, backing up a step, putting her free hand to her lips. Well, Miss Snell demanded, you want something? Mrs. Cleary wants to know if... Must you talk with your mouth full? <laughs> Grace swallowed. She wasn't in the least bit shy. Mrs. Cleary wants to know if you have any extra paper plates. I have no paper plates, Miss Snell said. And will you kindly inform Mrs. Cleary that this class is in session? All right, Grace said, and she took another bite of her cake and she turned to leave. Her eyes caught the pile of gifts and she paused to look at them, clearly unimpressed. You're holding up the class, Miss Snell said. Grace moved on. At the door, she gave the class a shy glance and a quick, silent giggle full of cake crumbs, and then slipped out. The minute hand crept down to 2.30, passed it, inched towards 2.45. Finally, at five minutes to three, Miss Snell laid down her book. All right, she said. I think we may all put our books away now. This is the last day of school before the holidays, and I've prepared a little surprise for you. She smiled again. Now I think it would be best if you all stay in your places, and I'll just pass these around. Alice Johnson, will you come please and help me? The rest of you, stay seated. Alice went forward, and Miss Snell divided the little packages into two heaps, using two pieces of drawing paper as trays. Alice took one paperful, cradling it carefully, and Miss Snell the other. Before they started around the room, Miss Snell said, Now, I think the most courteous thing would be for each of you to wait until 
everyone is served, and then we'll all open the packages together. All right, Alice. They started down the aisle, reading the labels and passing out the gifts. The labels were familiar Woolworth kind, with the picture of Santa Claus and Merry Christmas printed on them, and Miss Snell had filled them out in her neat blackboard lettering. John Gerhardt's read, To John G. From Miss Snell. <laughs> he picked it up, but the moment he felt the package, he knew with a little shock exactly what it was. <laughs> there was no surprise left by the time Miss Snell returned to the head of the class and said, All right. <laughs> he peeled off the paper and laid the gift on his desk. It was an eraser. <laughs> the serviceable, ten-cent kind, half white for pencil and half gray for ink. From the corner of his eye, he saw that Howard White beside him was unwrapping an identical one, and a furtive glance around the room confirmed that all the gifts had been the same. Nobody knew what to do. <laughs> and for what seemed a full minute, the room was silent, except for the dwindling rustle of tissue paper. Miss Snell stood at the head of the class, her clasped fingers writhing like dry worms at her waist. Her face melted into the soft, tremulous smile of the giver. <laughs> she looked completely helpless. At last, one of the girls said, Thank you, Miss Snell. And then the rest of the class said it in ragged unison, Thank you, Miss Snell. You are all very welcome, she said, composing herself. And I hope you all have a pleasant holiday. Mercifully, the bell rang then and the jostling clamor to retreat to the cloakroom. It was no longer necessary to look at Miss Snell. Her voice rose above the noise. Will you all please dispose of your paper and ribbon in the basket before you leave? John Gerhardt yanked on his rubbers, grabbed his raincoat, elbowed his way out of the cloakroom, out of the classroom, and down the noisy corridor. Hey, Howard, wait up, he yelled to Howard White. And finally, both of them were free of school, running, splashing through puddles on the playground. Miss Snell was left behind now, farther behind with every step. If they ran fast enough, they could even avoid the Taylor twins. And then there would be no need to think about any of it anymore. Legs pounding, raincoats streaming. They ran with the exhilaration of escape. Marion Seld has performed Fun with a Stranger by Richard Yates. You know, I hope those children cherished their sad little erasers. I love this story because of its technical precision and also how funny it is. I was deeply involved in the drama of school as a child. 
When my fourth grade teacher married the gym teacher, it was all we could talk about for weeks, months. The two of them were like movie stars who happened to hang out in the faculty lounge of my elementary school. It was only later, going back to that school, that the hallway seemed narrow and low-ceilinged, the water fountain was like six inches from the floor, and the teachers seemed like actual, ordinary people rather than celebrities. It was confusing. The Richard Yates story is interesting, in that Miss Snell isn't a hero or a villain. She's flawed and awful, and I bet a little tragic, and the children are her prisoners for one academic year. The eraser, of course, is a great symbol here for the deletion of all their hopes and dreams. Whereas the truth is that with a little luck, these kids are about to go off and write their own lives. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. I am so happy to be hosting the radio show and podcast, and I want to invite you, our loyal listeners, to be part of our Selected Shorts family by attending one of our shows. You, too, can be part of the magic of fiction. See the actors and hear the gasps and laughter live in a theater near you. While most of our stories are recorded at our home theater of Symphony Space in New York City, every year we pack our bags and take the show on the road. We go coast to coast. This season, we're making stops in California, Colorado, Connecticut, upstate New York, New Jersey, Texas, and Washington State. One of our stops has to be in driving distance, right? Head to SelectedShorts.org for the latest tour dates and ticket information. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan, Jenny Falcon, and Sarah Montague. Our team includes Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, Mary Shimkin, Vivienne Woodward, and Magdalene Robleski. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our programs presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles are recorded by Phil Richards. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation. This program is also made possible with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space.